All right, so the first term we're looking at is the term baptize or baptism or baptist. Again, this is a word created from the Greek by taking the Greek letters and putting them into the um, English equivalent. And so we get the word baptize. And that has the advantage of being able to use biblical language without knowing what the word means, right? But of course, that's not the goal. The verb, there's a verb, baptize, and then of course there's the noun, baptism. Let's talk about them separately. The word baptize, or the verb, is from the Greek baptizo, and closely related, a closely related family of words that means literally to immerse or to dip. Rather famous examples that are typically given uh, are things like it was common to describe a boat that sank in the Mediterranean Sea as having been baptized. It was obviously sunk to the bottom of the uh, water. Uh, when a, for hundreds of years, when a cloth was dyed, it was dipped fully into the water or other substance that had the color attached with it so that after a while the word the root word that meant to dip actually became the word that meant to dye something to dye it a color right many words many verbs have not only a literal meaning but they have a figurative meaning uh, baptizo is one of those as well figuratively the word means to be overwhelmed uh, to go through an ordeal of, of a traumatic nature, um, or to plunge. Think about, for example, Jesus when he said, uh, I have a baptism that I must be baptized with. This wasn't before John the Baptist. This wasn't that baptism. This was the ordeal of the cross. It was suffering hell from the hand of God for his people. So he's not using the word baptism there as a literal dipping into something. He, he's using the word figuratively to mean uh, I, I will be overwhelmed or I, I will have to go through something traumatic. Right? So that's the verb. Now the noun baptism is simply any immersion, any dipping, um, whether it's a religious connotation or not. But of course, usually the word baptism refers to the Christian ritual. Um, and it's often used regardless of the actual mode or the, the specifics of, of how the water is, is used. Um, it might be sprinkling, it might be pouring. And because baptism is not in our Bibles translated, but transliterated, uh, we're able to get away with that, right? Um, that's really a shame. It's led to a loss of understanding, um, but it, it is what it is, and it's been that way for hundreds of years, and it's not likely to change, all right? Of course, a Baptist is someone who baptizes or has been baptized in that 
immersive sense. Um, so it describes a, a doctrinal position. It describes a church group. So sometimes the word is capitalized and, and sometimes it's not. Um, but a Baptist in the ordinary general sense is one who holds that only professing believers ought to be baptized and that by baptism, by immersion, by dipping. Um, Baptists have traditionally believed that baptism is the entrance into the church, as do virtually every other uh, Christian group. Uh, but we do believe that because of our understanding of baptism and our understanding of the doctrine of the church, that it should consist of believers only, both the church and those who are baptized. All right? Um, to use the word Baptist is, is not a derogatory term. Only one of the terms that we will talk about is, is generally a derogatory. To call somebody a Baptist doesn't necessarily mean you're angry with them or dislike them or disagree with them, nor Pado-Baptist or Credo-Baptist or any of these other words, um, with one exception that we'll discuss. Now, sometimes we in the South make fun of ourselves and uh, say the word Baptist with a couple of B's instead of a B and a P and, and kind of lengthen out the word. Uh, but even then, I think it's meant in good fun and it's, it's not really meant as any kind of a, a cruelty. Um, we could have a whole lesson on the meaning of the word baptize and I don't want to, uh, excuse the pun, I don't want to drown in it. But if anyone has any questions about it, I'd also be very glad to try to answer them. And maybe some of you can even help me do that. Um, questions about baptized, baptism, Baptist. All right, let's go to Pado-Baptist. The first thing you should know is you can hear it said Pado-Baptist, Pedo-Baptist, and even Pido-Baptist, depending on where your English is coming from, right? It's all the same thing. This is a word that is um, consists of two uh, Greek words, the word for children or young child, Pido, and of course, baptism. So this is simply the name of the Christian ritual of baptism for infants or young children. So a pedo-baptist is someone who believes in the doctrine of infant baptism, believes in that practice. Now, we've talked about this before when we discussed the importance of baptism, but let me just say it's, it's very important to recognize that not every Baptist is necessarily a Christian. And not every Pado-Baptist is necessarily a Christian. This is a doctrine, contrary to what so many say, this is a doctrine that can disqualify you from being a genuine Christian if you get it badly enough wrong. If you, for example, believe that you must be baptized of, in whatever way in order to enter heaven, uh, that's a serious problem. That says that Christ alone is not sufficient. 
Yes, baptism is Christ's command, and yes, all who follow him should do it. But as we know, um, both in our life and from Scripture, there are exceptions. There are people for whom that simply is not an option. The thief on the cross is the classic example. And we know he entered heaven because Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. So um, you don't have to be baptized to get into heaven, and you can so trust in your baptism that you displace Christ and disqualify yourself. And there are Baptists who do that, and there are Pado-Baptists who do that. There are Evangelical Baptists and non-Evangelical, even sacramental Baptists. Now, there aren't a lot, but there are some. There are Evangelical Pado-Baptists and non-evangelical or sacramental in, a, in an extreme sense or in a wrong or false sense type of pedo-baptist. Right? Um, there are pedo-baptists who fully believe and have taught most of us Baptists <laughs> about grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. And of course there are pedo-baptists who tell you that baptism washes away your sins and if you have it done by a qualified priest and follow the other sacraments, you will earn enough to get into heaven. Right? So we need to recognize that there's a, there's a, a range of other beliefs attached to both baptism and perhaps especially so to paedo-baptism. You know, the Orthodox churches, the Russian, the Greek, etc., are paedo-baptistic churches. The Roman Catholic Church is a paedo-baptistic church. Um, Lutherans practice infant baptism differently than Anglicans, who practice it differently than Scottish Presbyterians, who practice it differently than, right, and, and on and on the list could go. Um, and so... I would just simply warn you, do not lump everyone who practices baptism or pedo-baptism into some grand group based only on this practice and expect to be accurately um, understanding or representing them. And to not represent um, others is a breach of the law of God. It, it's, this is not a small sin. We do not want to indulge in that. Right. Um, within paedo-baptism there is a diversity of mode now most Baptists that is people who believe that um, professing adults who give a credible confession of Christ are who should be baptized almost all immerse there are some exceptions, and there are some Baptists who would say, well, that is what we would do in every ordinary situation. But if, if there was some extreme uh, case where for some reason that just couldn't be done, uh, we would use another mode or another use of the water of baptism. But for most Baptists, and historically for particular Baptists, which we are, 
we don't really believe in mode. <laughs> we don't really believe that there are alternate ways of using water in baptism. Because remember, baptism means immersion. Baptism doesn't mean something else. It means dipping. And so the mode of dipping is dipping. The mode of immersion is immersion. It can't be something else. That's what most uh, Baptists believe and practice. There is more diversity in the uh, Paedo-Baptist communions. In Greek Orthodoxy, for example, does anyone know what they do when they baptize an infant? Well, they immerse an infant in the font three times. So it's trine immersion, one, two, three, and there's not a sprinkling or a washing, but there is an immersion, there is a baptizing. The Greeks claim to know their own language. I'm being a little facetious there. But that's their practice. Um, both Calvin and Luther both agreed that the basic meaning of baptize or baptizo is immersed and that that should be the standard practice, but uh, they both believed, and Calvin is very specific about this, that in other climates and other situations, um, pouring or sprinkling is, is fully uh, acceptable. All right? Um, so again, there's, there's more diversity of mode. The, the variety of ways that there is sprinkling or washing or the use of a cloth or not or, or many other things, uh, it, it tends to be greater here. Because there is the sense that, that baptism describes an act and doesn't describe the method of the act, which again, Baptists strongly disagree with. Right, so any, any questions about these first two? We'll, we'll move more quickly but these are the first, uh, these are the basic two definitions, at least in Protestant Christendom. All right, next on your list is Credo Baptism or Credo Baptist. This is another made up word. This is a fairly modern word. Um, I don't recall, I used to know the, the origin of this, but I don't believe it's more than about 50 or 60 years old. Um, but it, you know what the word credo means, right? I believe and baptism. So this is another word that's more specific for a Baptist. This is overtly saying uh, for baptism to properly take place, the person has to have a profession of faith. So it is credo baptism. And, and I believe it was coined uh, for a couple of reasons. One is it is more specific. Secondly, it's directly comparable to pedo baptism, right? Because pedo baptism means uh, infants, little children of believers should be baptized. Credo baptism says those who should be baptized are those who can personally profess. And I think thirdly, um, it's, it's really stuck because it rhymes. 
<laughs> and it's easy to remember. So there's pedo-baptism and credo-baptism. And I suspect those will be in the English language until Christ returns. Again, any questions about that? That that's a word you you will see regularly though if you if you read it all. Now, does anyone know what the next word is? Sea Baptist. Oh, come on, Wesley. You're disappointing me. This is um, this is a word that describes self baptism. Self baptism. There are accounts, both in ancient history and in relatively modern uh, Western church history of men who have baptized themselves, and, and women, men and women who have baptized themselves. Um, usually the reason this happens is because they have become convinced that their first baptism, for some reason, was fundamentally flawed. It used to be felt that unless the person who administered the baptism was in a line from the apostles, uh, the baptism wasn't valid. Many, many people have believed that through church history. Uh, that's even plagued, sadly, uh, particular Baptists at times. Who should know better? If anybody should, we, we should. Um, but that gets forgotten at times. At other times, there's just the practical difficulty of you live in a time and a place where no one else believes in either the form or the kind of baptism you do, and you want to follow God, so what do you do? This was the case, or at least close to it, by the first English Baptist, who was not a particular Baptist. He was a, an Arminian Baptist, a general Baptist, and his name was John Smith. John Smith, with a Y in Smith. And he baptized himself when he became convinced that his earlier sprinkling was wrong and that believer's baptism was the true baptism. He had grown up, of course, in the Anglican Church. He'd been sprinkled as an infant. Uh, he came to believe that that was wrong. Well, somebody has to start, was his basic argument. And so I will start, and as the pastor of the church, I will baptize myself, and then I will baptize other members in my church who desire that. And so Thomas Helwes, his a co-elder and others he then baptized. He later actually regretted, I, I believe, his sea baptism. It drew all kinds of criticism, as you can imagine. Uh, the man is a law to himself, and he's overthrowing the rule of church and state, and um, many other things. Um, his self-baptism was probably by a pouring water over himself while kneeling. That is likely the mode or manner that he did it. Uh, he was later to become convinced that that wasn't right either. All right. Okay, next we go on to sprinkling. Uh, sprinkling is certainly a common mode of performing the Christian ritual of of cleansing and inclusion into the church that we call baptism. 
Um, the vast majority of paedo-baptistic baptism is, um, is by sprinkling in the U.S. and in England. You will occasionally hear it called rantism, R-A-R-A-N-T-I-S-M, especially if you read any older works. That's not a slur. That's not um, Pentecostal or Quaker baptism, rantism. It's simply the Greek word rantizo means to sprinkle. So again, it's, it's, it's very much like baptism. Uh, to rantize someone is to sprinkle them. All right? And again, there are various ways to sprinkle, but um, it's usually with a, a very modest amount of water. All right. Next is effusion. Effusion, or as we normally say, pouring. Uh, this is the common Mennonite method, at least historically. Um, and, and both sprinkling and pouring came into common reformed practice largely through uh, the church in Geneva, Calvin's Geneva, where, um, where these things were practiced. And after uh, Bloody Mary uh, died and they could go back to England, they took this view of of the various ways that baptism was legitimate, uh, they took it back to England. For perhaps 1,500 years, the mode of baptism in England was baptism, was immersion. But that changed um, in the 1500s, and until 1640, when certain particular Baptists did it, um, uh, immersion, uh, sprinkling was by far the most common mode of of uh, baptism. Finally, the word immersion, uh, dipping, submerging, uh, to submerge is right at the core of what the word baptizo means. Uh, and uh, Again, th this can be practiced in different ways. Uh, the person can be standing, they can be sitting, uh, they can be kneeling, it might be in water that's moving or water that's not. Um, there have been arguments among Baptist churches about whether the person should be facing upstream when it happens or downstream. I'm sadly not joking. Um, some immersions or submersions are by dunking. That's really how I do it. Um, I do an immersion by typically placing my hand on a person's head and helping them down. Um, that lets small men baptize large men. Every indication, and we don't have a lot, but every indication that we have from the earliest Jewish full baptisms in mikvahs and, uh, and the Christian churches, that is probably how people were baptized. And we say that because we have some very specific descriptions of how the Jews immersed themselves, which was one of their practices, and they would get into what we would call baptismals. They called them mikvahs. They would stand um, up to their necks, and then they would dip their head in, so they were fully immersed. No administrator, always self-administered, and it would appear that the churches um, did that as well. Uh, that's, that's the 
architectural, um, drawing, uh, descriptive, etc. cetera, um, data uh, leads us to think that, all right? Some Baptists uh, immerse three times. Most immerse once in the triune name. If any of you came from or lived near certain Anabaptist sects, um, some of them baptized three times. The German Baptists, who are a kind of Anabaptist. Um, the Dunkers, who came to the colonies and established a number of cities in the Pennsylvania colony that had Bible names like Ephrata and other places, Bethlehem, Nazareth. Those are all uh, Dunkard or Immerser-founded towns. All right, And they all did it three times, three-time immersion. Um, now, I, I missed one word, and that's the word Anabaptism, and I, I ought to go back to that. I apologize. But before I do that last definition, any other questions or improvements? Well, Anabaptism is a derogatory term it was initiated as a derogatory term against a group of people who who broke with both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation. Some of these people were genuine Christians, some of them were maniacs. But one of the things most of them had in common was the belief that baptism was to be done upon an adult profession of faith and that their first baptism was no baptism at all. Well, their enemies called them Anabaptists. Anna means to do over again, to repeat. So an Anabaptism is a re-baptism. Of course, they denied that completely. They utterly would not agree that they were Anabaptists or were doing an Anabaptism. They were doing, for the first time, a scriptural baptism, they would say. So understand that this is one of those names that's applied to a people who didn't ask for it and don't agree with it, and yet the name has stuck, all right? Um, they typically called themselves much simpler names like uh, the Brothers or the Brotherhood of Christ or, um, or things like that, or, or perhaps after, names after their early leaders, um, the Mennonites were an Anabaptist group named after Menno Simons. Um, today, the term Anabaptist is used in two distinct ways. One, to describe a historical group of people that, as we said, arose around the time, perhaps a little before, uh, around, uh, around the beginning of the Reformation and was neither Roman Catholic and nor was Protestant. There are many of those groups. They're still in the world today. Some of them are very conservative. Some of them are thoroughly liberal. Some of them are uh, legalistic to the point of not being Christian at all. And others of them truly know Christ. Uh, the largest groups would be 
uh, the disciples, the German brethren, the Amish, uh, and the various Mennonite groups. Those would probably be the largest Anabaptist groups. But there are Hutterites and Schwenkfeldrians and lots and lots of other uh, small groups that all are uh, Anabaptists. And when that word is used simply as a descriptive historical term, it's not offensive. However, uh, the term Anabaptist has been historically used as a derogatory term for English Baptists, for, for us. Um, and it's a word meant to convey that this person is a fanatic about religion. I mean, religion should be serious, but these people are fanatics. You'll recall that our first confession of faith as particular Baptists from 1644 is called this. The confession of faith of those churches which are commonly, though falsely, called Anabaptists. We didn't have a name yet. We didn't. Even the term Baptists began probably in the 1670s and also was used derogatorily, but we were simply Christians. We were brethren. We were um, congregationalists of the uh, baptizing conviction, right? Things like that, but no real name. But we were named Anabaptists, and we spent the first hundred years of vociferously denying that there was any connection between Protestant Puritan Baptists and um, and the Anabaptists. There is no historical connection. There is very little shared Christian belief or doctrinal. There is some, um, but the English particular Baptists did not arise from or get those doctrines from the Anabaptists. So it is, it is a false charge. It is a nasty charge that thankfully has not completely but almost completely stopped being done. I am thankful for that because um, it's a term of prejudice. It is a slur. Now, sadly, we still have a couple of very, very truly reformed brothers who insist on not calling us particular Baptists, but Anabaptists. And I believe that is sinful, and I wish they would stop. We must not talk that way about each other, even when we know the other person is wrong. Um, that should be beneath Christians. Um, I'm sure Baptists have paid it back uh, twice-fold. I'm, I'm not only critiquing one side. We simply ought not to um, speak that way. Questions about any of this? Oh, you are a dull group, or perhaps I have put you to sleep. Let's go on to the next question. Um, in what manner should this question be considered? In what manner should this question be considered? And my short answer, and this is a quote from Spurgeon, is with candor and courtesy. In other words, to use biblical language, with truth and love. Because if we do anything less than that, 
We sin against God. We fail him and we fail each other. You know, on the one hand, we despise the value of truth if we say, oh, it's not important. Uh, we're just not going to talk about it. Uh, things will be more peaceful that way. God has obligated all of us to be Bereans, Baptists and Paedo-Baptists alike. <laughs> we must search the scriptures and find the truth. We must study hard and exchange our ideas. We need to encourage one another. We need to read books. We need to know the history of these things. And we can even debate, but we ought not to sinfully argue or accuse or denounce. That's to pass over into sin. And we must not give up our views easily. If, if we believe we're convinced by God, we're not asking anyone to roll over with candor, with truth. Truth is important. This is part of the worship of God. Baptism is no small thing, brothers. There's a lot about baptism in the Bible. There's a lot about it in the Bible. And so we have every reason to believe that God has been plain enough and given us sufficient data to rightly understand his mind about what it is, what it means, how it should be done, and who it's for. The fact that Christians disagree doesn't mean God's word is inadequate. It means we're still sinners. That's what it means. So we have to pursue the truth. But we also have to pursue the truth gently and patiently and kindly assuming the best about each other. That's why I don't think I should be called an Anabaptist. And that's why I shouldn't call someone, um, as I've known some to do, um, oh, you're just a, a closet Roman Catholic because you sprinkle babies. That's not fair. That's not just. That's not kind. That's all wrong. This discussion must always be done courteously and lovingly. Respect listens to each other. Love is not rude, but mannerly. Christ is our example here. He had to teach a very slow, I mean, talk about thick-headed. Sometimes we're reading the gospel and we just want to beat our head against the wall. But we are the same way. And Christ was patient with them and we need to be patient with each other. Who knows? If we do, if we diligently search for the truth and we do it in God's way, we, we might even find the truth. It could happen, you know. And if not, and it won't always happen, because we're not in heaven yet, <laughs> we're still fallen, still one of God's main purposes will have been accomplished. That is that we have obeyed the ninth commandment, we have loved one another, we have valued God's truth, and we have tried to patiently and peaceably sit under the scriptures and search. All right? So in what manner should this question be considered? Only with a full dose of truth and a full dose of love. All right?
Again, questions or comments? Question number three. And I am madly searching for my paper. By what method should this question be answered? How do, how do we arrive at a, a right answer? How do we study the Bible to get the right answer to this question? Well, I still can't find my notes, so until I do, the short answer is this. In the same way that Reformed Protestants answer every other question about the Bible. We use the same interpretive principles that we do on every other question. Do we want to know who God is? We read our Bible a certain way. Do we want to know how salvation works, who Christ is, how the church should function? Any other question? The answer is in that same way. But I have five, here they are. I have five short um, principles that Reformed Protestants have always used to interpret the Bible. Many of these will, will not be a surprise to you, but this is how we're going to attempt to answer the question. We're not going to go off into some weird, anab historically Anabaptistic hermeneutic. We're not going to fall back on tradition and follow the Eastern Orthodox Church. We're going to answer this question as Reformed Protestants, as, as Christians we, we trust of the best sort both in knowledge and humility. So here they are. First, we should answer, we should approach this question, we, we should attempt to answer this question first from Scripture alone, from the Bible alone. History and tradition can be helpful in any Bible study. Of course they can. But they are not ultimately directive. The only thing that binds our consciences should be the Word of God. Period. Now that doesn't mean, as, as so many people take it to mean, and frankly, many Baptists take this to mean, that that means me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit. That's not how the Bible tells us we are to learn the Scriptures and find out meaning from it. It's not. It's in the context of the church. So we do listen to church history. We do listen to tradition. Not so that we can simply swallow it whole, whatever they say, but so that when we find their reasons for those traditions, we can compare them with Scripture. We can learn wonderful things from John Calvin about baptism, and we can learn wonderful things about Charles Spurgeon from baptism, even though they didn't agree on this subject in every point. The scripture alone is the touchstone. But that touchstone is held by the church. It's interpreted with and in the midst of the church, especially with the help of Christ's uh, pastor teachers throughout history. All right? Secondly, and, and these are very quick, um, the principle of Scripture alone. Secondly, the principle of 
progressive revelation. We believe that later revelation interprets earlier revelation. That as more light dawns throughout redemptive history, that it is clearer later than earlier. And so generally speaking, the later parts of the Old Testament interpret the earlier parts of the Old Testament. And the New Testament tends to be able to interpret the Old Testament. Books like Galatians and Hebrews, oh, without them, would we really know how to interpret the Old Testament? Ah, but we have them. And, and so we do that, right? So scripture alone, um, progressive the principle of progressive revelation. Thirdly, and, and these are interlocked, but that the clear interprets the unclear. We don't go to the book of Revelation and finalize our eschatology and then interpret all of the plainer scriptures like 2 Peter 3 by revelation. We do it just the opposite way. We find this principle in the scriptures and it's how we ought to function. The clear ought to interpret the unclear. The specific ought to interpret the general. Fourth, um, we believe that the scriptures are perspicuous. That is a really funny word because perspicuous means clear, and for most of you, it's not clear. I've always liked that word. But it's belief that the scriptures are clear. I'm going to give a an example that I gave to another family this afternoon. And I hope the Arnolds do not mind me giving this example. They are online, and we've talked about this many times. But one of the reasons that true Reformed brothers and sisters who don't yet see eye to eye on this subject of baptism can be in truly fundamental agreement about baptism is this. We believe God has spoken about the subject clearly in the scriptures. Now, maybe, maybe at times that's all we can agree on. I thank God that my brother and sister in particular, um, we, we have much more in common than that. But, but even if we didn't agree on almost anything else, I remember that sweet afternoon at their home where we affirmed not only our love for one another, but the most fundamental truth about baptism, and that is that it's God has placed it in the Bible, and whatever the truth is, it's clearly and sufficiently set down there. The problem isn't God. The problem isn't the Word of God. The problem is us. Notice I didn't say the problem's Him, or the problem's me. The problem is us. And that's not to deny that I believe I hold the truth. But the scriptures are clear. And I really bled over into this last one. The scriptures are sufficient. Last week, Brother Carlo read that infamous passage, The Baptism of the Dead, in 1 Corinthians 15. And the truth is, this is 
funny, but it's not really a joke. The truth is, if you read a hundred men on what that verse means, you'll you'll read a hundred different opinions. Um, we don't take that verse and make it the key verse for understanding baptism in the Bible, right? We go from the clear to the unclear. We go from perspicuity. We go from sufficiency. There isn't just one verse in the Bible about baptism. There are many examples and many direct teachings. There are many conclusions drawn from baptism. There's a lot of material in our Bibles about baptism. So, um, the scriptures are sufficient on this subject. Often you'll hear people say something like this, good men differ, how will I ever know? Well, you will know because the Spirit will teach you from the Word in the context of the church. You say, oh yeah, but they believed it and somebody's got to be wrong. Yes, that's right. But this isn't an insolvable puzzle. This isn't an inscrutable enigma that no one can possibly know. There's so little data and the scriptures are so clear or so unclear and, and so many different men have viewed it so many different ways. No. No, that's to focus on our limitations instead of God's provision. And God's provision is the Holy Spirit speaks in the scriptures and it's clear and sufficient. And we need to believe that. And so we need to pursue this truth. And that is what we will try to do in the um, next week and, and throughout our lives on any and every subject. All right? One last question, and then we'll be done. Question. Oh, no, I fibbed. Very quickly, question four. What are the three scriptural ways we learn our duty? How do we know from the Bible what we're supposed to do? Command, number one, right? Law, duty, imperatives, right? That's the first one. Secondly, approved example, an apostle following Christ under his stewardship consistently does everything the same way and says, you must follow my tradition in his writings. Well, guess what? His example is our rule. So that's the second way. And the third is by necessary deduction, by logical inference, by arguing accurately and necessarily from the scriptures. Right? Those are the three ways that we learn our duty. So, and, and that's true with anything and everything. This isn't unique to baptism. So what we're going to do is, um, Lord willing, next week, we'll say, hey, are there any commands about infant baptism? Are there any examples about infant baptism? And then the one that, that's really, frankly, crucial, are there any necessary valid deductions um, to support infant baptism. And, and I trust, although um, well, and I trust that will be clear for us. All right? And then question five, does this question relate to all infants? Uh, no. At least not in Reformed Protestant, in the Reformed Protestant world it doesn't. Right? Um, there may well be some folks 
somewhere who, who say, well, just all, all children should be sprinkled. Um, doesn't matter if their parents are religious or attend our church. Or, But again, for Baptists to portray paedo-baptism that way, that's generally um, an unfair description. Uh, classic Reformed Protestantism, especially as found in uh, Presbyterianism, is that the children of church members, the children of the faithful, the children of Christians, are those who are eligible. People in the covenant. And again, there have been many variations. and um, But paedo-baptism is not in Reformed Protestantism, uh, just an excuse to, to bring into the church any and every acute little infant. Uh, that, that's not a fair characterization. All right?